Well, good morning again. Please turn with me in your copy of the Scripture to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. As we continue our way through this letter. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, we'll read verses 1 through 11 today. Paul writes, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Paul's main point here is that Christians should be encouraged by the hope of salvation as they sober-mindedly await the day of the Lord. Christians should be encouraged by the hope of salvation as they sober-mindedly await the day of the Lord. He opens this section with the same rhetorical device he's used a couple times, a paralepsis, if you remember, which is where he says, you have no need to hear about this, and then he proceeds to tell them about it. That's exactly What happens here concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Apparently, there was another shade of the Thessalonians' concern about the coming of Christ. You'll remember in the last section, the concern was, will those who have died before the coming of Christ be disadvantaged? That was the concern. And his answer is, they certainly will not be disadvantaged. Okay. In fact, the dead in Christ will be raised first. Everyone will be transformed. They will not miss out. But there's a different shade here, and, and from we can't be certain. But to all appearances, the the concern here seems to be that one of the ways the Thessalonians were trying to prepare for that day was figuring out when it was going to happen. And hey, that's an understandable thing, right? I mean, if you're preparing for something in your life uh, or an event. I mean, knowing when it's going to happen, that's a pretty helpful piece of information. And so you certainly can't fault them for doing so. But Paul says this is, this is not the, the, the right approach. This times and seasons here, that's kind of that stock language for the last things. It shows up in Acts 1.8 uh, when, when the disciples asked Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons. It's kind of talking about those last things. Uh, So Paul is saying here that no one needs to write you about the timing of last things because what you've already been taught is sufficient for you to be prepared. What you've already been taught is sufficient for you to be 
prepared. And he's going to talk about what they are aware of exactly using two different analogies. But I do want to start with pointing out that they are fully aware of something. There's something in this passage that they're fully aware of. And then it's going to contrast a little bit, or it might at first appearances with something later on. It says, for you yourselves are fully aware. Fully aware of what? What is it that they are fully aware is going to happen? What they are fully aware is that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That's what they're aware of. The thief, unexpected. Uh, when, when a thief shows up at night, people are generally sleeping. We even see the sleep language uh, later on in the passage here. They're shocked to either wake up and, I don't know, see some of their stuff gone, or, or shocked to see a stranger in their house. But nevertheless, there is a sense of total unexpectedness. And so the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, the parousia, as we, as we learned last week, has a strong degree of unpredictability, happens unexpectedly, and they have been made fully aware that this will happen unexpectedly. Okay? It will happen unexpectedly. Then he makes a contrast and introduces a second analogy. He says... While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction, unexpected destruction, will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. They will not escape. They're walking around saying peace and security. This is a well-known piece of Roman propaganda. Uh, this, is, you, you, this shows up in a lot of literature of what the Roman Empire was supposed to be doing and was kind of a slogan just for the ministry of the empire. Peace and security. This is what Rome was going to bring to the region, to the world, you might say. And Paul says that there are people who are going about life. They're putting their hope in all the wrong places. And when Christ returns, it will be unexpected, like the thief, but... It will also be inevitable. It will also be inevitable. You might say this, and commentators debate this a little bit, but you might say, well, listen, a woman in, in labor who has labor pains that come upon her, surely she can't be realistically surprised that labor pains are coming. I mean, she's pregnant. Anyway, fair enough. Um, it could be, though, that it's talking about the time of the pains coming upon her. I think that, that that last clause, though, clarifies that this is not just saying that this analogy is adding a different layer, and it's not just the same thing, that they will not escape. I think the emphasis seems to be uh, that the labor pains are inevitable, that uh, the labor pains are inevitable. They are coming. They're, you're not going to avoid them. You will not escape them, is, is the idea which will and, and this sudden event that's going to come on is going to bring the exact opposite of peace and security what is being proclaimed in fact it's going to bring certain sudden destruction certain and sudden destruction upon the folks who are saying peace security unfortunately the the noah the the, the escape clause here 
doesn't have the emphatic negation like the, in the previous passage. In the Greek, it says something like, they will certainly not escape, which I think adds weight to the interpretation I just gave, that the emphasis here is on the inevitability of it. Even though it certainly will be sudden and unexpected, the emphasis here is on the inevitability of it. The labor pains are inevitable, and they certainly will not escape. I'm going to make one of two slightly nerdy theological inserts here. I could not resist. I tried the best of my self-control, but I'm just going to throw this out there. It's going to be a pebble in your shoe, maybe a grenade. I don't know. Um, but here's a question for you. How can there be an opportunity for salvation after the return of Christ if this is the case? If after Christ returns, I have a long time, say, a thousand years maybe, I don't know. Um, why be why be watchful? Why be watchful? I've got a long time to re- get my house in order, repent and believe. There's no urgency because destruction doesn't happen when Christ returns. It happens at the very. Just going to throw that out there and let you consider how such a thing could be possible, given what Paul says here. So moving along, the Thessalonians are fully aware that uh, the day of the Lord is unexpected. It will be like a thief, and it will bring inevitable destruction, certain destruction to those blinded to the shape of reality. That's the idea. But then he says something very interesting here. Very, very interesting. Verse 4. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, like that thief in the night. And so... (laughs) The, the, the Thessalonians are aware the day will come unexpected like a thief. But Paul says, but you won't be surprised like a thief. So on first pass, you're like, well, which one is it here? So if I just asked you, true or false, you will be surprised by the day of the Lord like a thief in the night. What would you say? Well, the answer is a trick question. It's a trick question. It depends. You're telling me a thief's coming that I won't expect, but I won't be surprised by it. Which one is it? And so the passage calls us to make a distinction between two different kinds of being surprised that the context itself defines. The first kind of being surprised, which will be everyone, is some kind of psychological state of surprise and unexpectedness. You will be driving to Kroger one day. And the the world as we know it will end. You will be like, whoa, wasn't expecting that. This is the surprise of a surprise birthday party. Someone shows up at your, uh, someone drove in from out of town to surprise you. And there's a psychological sense of, oh, wow, right? You're unexpected. It's maybe bewilderment, shock, whatever. That's the first kind. And everyone will be surprised in that sense. There won't be anyone who's like, all right, tomorrow's the day. I know it. I've been calculating it out perfectly. And so it's not going to catch. No, everyone will have this kind of surprise. But there's another kind of surprise that the passage is that Paul is going to tease out in this passage. And that is the surprise of being unprepared and caught off guard due to lack of awareness. A surprise as being unprepared and caught off guard due to lack of awareness. The first kind of surprise says, I didn't expect this to happen in this way. Or this time. That's the first kind of psychological surprise. The second kind is, uh, uh, I'm I'm unprepared because I'm not aware that anything's going to happen at all. You see. 
I'm unprepared. And so I ser- both groups will experience the psychological shock, but one person, one person will not be surprised uh, in the sense that they will be prepared while the other one will not be prepared. Uh, the surprise for them is that something is happening at all. Okay, so maybe to put it, put it in other words, the, the uh, distinction in the passage is between being surprised by the timing of Christ's coming and by the fact that Christ is coming at all. Being surprised by the timing, everyone. Being surprised that there will be a coming and a reckoning. He says, you aren't in darkness for that to be surprised in that way. You will not get caught. Uh, uh, you will not get caught unprepared because you will be expecting the day of the Lord, even though you don't know what time at which to expect it. Okay. And he introduces two ways to live here, teasing out this darkness language, which goes together with kind of the thief and the night theme. It all fits together, which is why we read some of the back half of Romans chapter thirteen. Listen to what he says. He says, because you're not in darkness and you're not going to be surprised, he said, for you are all children of light, children of the day. The only time that phrase is used in Paul. For we are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at, at night. We have two categories of folks with two corresponding conducts, two spheres of living with two corresponding conducts that flow out of them. That first is the day dwellers, is the day dwellers, those who belong to the light, the day. Paul's time didn't know anything about working a graveyard shift um, and, and, and getting wasted in the middle of the day was particularly socially shameful. There wasn't the drunk cart driving around Nashville pedal pedal wagon or whatever. Um, and so the audience would have understood the imagery well. You sleep and you get drunk, that happens at night. That ha- those are nighttime activities, and both of those are also images themselves. One for unaware, one for awareness, unawareness, and one for sober-mindedness. Right? Those are the two primary themes. People who sleep at night are unaware. People who are drunk aren't sober-minded. Paul says, let us be folks, we belong to the day. Let us be folks who are watching, who are careful, who are aware and who are sober-minded, unlike the second category of folks, the night dwellers. Unlike the night dwellers. Again, the audience would have understood the same thing. You sleep and get drunk after the sun goes down. That's, That's how that works. And they would have understood the imagery the same way. Night dwellers are aloof. They're aloof to the world they live in and what's happening. They're not aware. They're inattentive. They are are checked out of the true narrative of reality. They're not sober-minded. And they are living lives such that they will be unprepared when the master shows up one day. Who? What? I had no idea. Look at this place. It's a wreck. What's the takeaway? The takeaway here is that those belonging to the day should exhibit the corresponding conduct on the basis of their belonging to Christ. If you belong to the day, walk in the light. If you belong to the day, walk in the light. That's what Paul's saying here. 
In verse 8, he starts off with that same language, but then he is going to leave it behind for some more concrete theological terms, but still use imagery. He says, but since we belong to the day, because we are, our identity is, is, the, is day dwellers, is as day dwellers, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. There's a little bit of a discussion about how to translate the Greek here. Is it, I am to put these things on um, in the course of being a day dweller, or is it because I already have them, I'm supposed to kind of live in them? The truth is, I don't know. I don't know. When all the top Greek scholars disagree on it, I'm certainly not going to be like, I have the insight that they all missed. I don't know. But here's the thing. Thankfully, mercifully, in this case, it's not really clear that it matters because the practical import is going to be exactly the same. If you live, if you are, if you belong to the day, then you are to pursue, put on, walk in faith, love, the hope of salvation. That's the conduct of day dwellers, which contrasts sharply with the conduct of night dwellers. And this is because of our union with Christ. Now, you'll notice that there is a little bit of a difference in the armor here from Ephesians chapter 6. This is one of those passages like ruins someone's great moment from kids' Sunday school where they had a cardboard centurion all made up, and they're in the Lord's army. And then they're like, oh, wait, a breastplate of righteousness it is in Ephesians 6, remember? Well, here it's the breastplate of faith and love. Oh, my outfit got ruined. You know, what's going on here? Changing up the armor in Romans 13, the armor of light, another armor reference. Um, it could be that Paul does not particularly care what piece of the typical Roman centurion armor gets paired with what spiritual corollary. That could be it. He just plays a little bit fast and loose with it. Or you could say that that faith and love, well, isn't that that's what righteousness looks like lived out. I put on the breastplate of righteousness. Well, that is to say the breastplate of faith and love because that's what righteousness looks like when it comes out in the wash of life. I'm not sure which one it is, but I don't think anyone should be in angst or have some of their Sunday school memories ruined. We are to be about these things, faith and love, because we belong to this, we should be about this. Indicative, therefore imperative. That's how it works. That's how it works. No one should be in angst, but that's precisely because of the next two verses. The next two verses. For God has... Why do you have the hope of salvation? Why do you put these things on? For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. He started off the letter, if you remember, in chapter 1, verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. And he returns to this theme yet again. And what's clear in the context of the passage, what might not be clear if it was just sucked out out of the context, but what's clear in the context of the passage is there are two groups of folks. There's a group of folks that are destined for wrath, And those are night dwellers who are unaware and who will be, uh, 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 the day of the Lord will sneak up on them. 
Okay, Decipherat, the other group of folks, people decipher salvation. Two groups. There's a contrast between them. The contrast runs through the whole passage. Okay, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You might ask, though, what explains why there is a hope of salvation through Christ for those destined to attain it? That presumably, those who are destined not to obtain it, presumably do not have. And that is the death of Christ. It is a death that brings life. It's a death that actually brings life. And let me just pause and say, I think I've kind of skipped over it in my mind, that it is God. God is the main actor here. For God has not destined us for wrath. God is a destiner. He is a determiner. Um, and you don't have to be able to put that together in your mind, all right? No one has to be a philosopher or understand, try to seek to understand the mind of God. Or Listen, it, man is responsible. God is sovereign. We move forward under, and we hold those two things in tension, okay? God is sovereign. Man's responsible. Set of folks destined for wrath, more, they're responsible for that. Set of people responsible for salvation through Jesus Christ, Christ responsible for that. And they are responsible for repenting and believing. No one loses responsibility. There's no injustice on God's part. People who are destined for salvation gets mercy. Everyone else gets justice. God's a just God. But to return to the, to the point, it is Christ that is the securing hope. It's a death that brings life. That's why a Christian, those who are destined for salvation, don't have an empty hope, unlike the people screaming, Peace and security. This takes us right to the atonement. This takes us to the heart of the gospel where God becomes incarnate in the person of Jesus and then takes on the sin of humanity, all of it. That is to say the punishment for sin. He is reckoned a sinner. It's imputed to him. He's treated as a sinner. He is punished for our transgressions, pierced for our iniquities. And therefore, in the words of A.W. Tozer, he short-circuits the wrath of God, the cross short-circuits the wrath of God onto Christ leaving nothing but grace and mercy for the objects of his kindness. That's what happens here. That's, what, that's why the people destined for salvation in Jesus Christ have hope, because they have a Christ who has died for them, providing an abiding hope in the resurrection. The resurrection, that's the second half of the verse. Who died for us, that is Christ, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. I'm going to just move past all of the, the different interpretive options. There's only a couple. Um, but the idea is, it, it certainly seems that what Paul is doing in, the, in, this, in this one, the context of these couple of verses, and in the context of the larger passage in 1 uh, Thessalonians chapter 4 at the end there, is he's dipping back into that awake or asleep as people who are living it when Christ returns and people who have died in Christ. He's saying, listen, no matter what, you are going to live with him, not to be understood in this context is necessarily just going to heaven. Okay? And, and by the way, there is, a, there is a New Testament theological category for life in Christ, uh, either, I would say, coming to life or experiencing life uh, in the intermediate state, but before the resurrection. But I think what is going on here, along with the overwhelming majority of commentators, is that it is returning to the same theme uh, back at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that the dead in Christ will rise first, that they will not be disadvantaged. And so whether we are awake 
living or whether we are asleep, a euphemism for death, we will live eternally. We will rise to eternal life in, in resurrected bodies. And before moving on, I've got my second small theological pebble, maybe a grenade, it's not clear again. Um, we ask, what explains, what explains why there is a hope of salvation through Jesus Christ for those destined to attain it, that those destined to attain wrath presumably don't have? And that raises a very interesting theological question. I'm going to put it up here for you to read. The us here. If Christ died for those destined for wrath, why does Paul highlight the death of Christ as the very thing that grounds the hope of the Thessalonian Christians? Read it one more time. If Christ died for those destined for wrath, why does Paul highlight the death of Christ as the very thing that grounds the hope of the Thessalonians Christians? I mean, it doesn't seem to make sense as a, as a practical piece of comfort. I'm not making an argument from a word. I'm making an argument from the context of providing encouragement, which is what this passage is about. Verse 11. Have hope. Christ died for you so that in death and life, salvation is yours. And he, did this, he, and he died in the same way for all these people who are going to also face his wrath. But still, still be comforted. Still be comforted. For some reason, if I heard that, I would, I'm, not, I'm not so comforted. My comfort level is... Diminishing quickly. If uh, someone destined for wrath can claim the same foundation as I can. It seems that those who have a hope of salvation have a foundation to appeal to that those destined for wrath don't have. That's why they can have hope. That's why their hope's not empty. That's why their hope's not empty. That's why Paul uses this as a practical piece of encouragement saying, here is something that goes to bat to bolster this hope that is asymmetrical here. And so you can have hope and salvation instead of empty hope. You have a Christ who died for you. That's why. You have a Christ who died for you. So I'm just going to leave that there. And I'm not going to say anything about even what debate that it tends to affect or whatever, but I'm going to throw that out there and do with it what you will. Paul's final exhortation, which again gives the context for the, the argument I just threw out there, is verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another. Build one another up just as you are doing. The purpose of the passage is to provide practical encouragement, hope, building up. And remember, it's very similar to the words used to close the last passage. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so let me just say, we have two passages back to back where you have a good amount of, of, of theology going on for the explicit purpose of providing practical comfort, encouragement, and building up. Okay, And that's what he says. Encourage daytime activity is what Paul's saying. He's, Rejoice in the hope of salvation. Be eager. Be ready for the day of the Lord. Because if you're a day dweller, when the Lord comes, your salvation is certain. And the judgment of those who have persecuted you and vindication is certain. It's coming. It will be a great day for you. There's nothing to fear. You know why? Because Christ died for you. That's why. Christ died for you. Presumably in the passage, not everyone can, has the same hope, and so not everyone can say the same thing in, in, in theological parlance. Nevertheless, remains true that anybody who repents and believes the, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Encourage daytime activity. 
God in the flesh died for you. Your salvation is as inevitable as the inescapable judgment coming on those destined for wrath. That's how certain it is. Both are certain. And so Christians should be encouraged by the hope of salvation as they sober-mindedly await the day of the Lord. Now, how do we prepare for the day of the Lord? Well, we certainly don't prepare for it by trying to predict what's going to happen. Seems to be the course of action the Thessalonians thought would be the most promising. And Paul says, to whatever extent that was a good thought, uh, it's misguided. So we are certainly not going to be people who try to predict the timing of the return of Christ. And every time someone does, they're on TV and they look like an idiot and it's embarrassing. And your friends at work, oh, if you're one of these people who think, oh, man. How do we prepare then so that when the master returns... We are not caught off guard. I want to break this just into two main categories here, and I didn't give the subpoints like I usually do, um, and I don't really know why. I just didn't. So if you're a note taker, this will be your finest hour. Living in awareness is the first category here. What does it mean to live aware? To live soberly, to live aware um, of the fact that there is a master and he is in fact returning. And so while you can be certain of that, And you can be certain if you are a day dweller, if you're united to Christ, that means good things for you. How do you live preparedly, you might say? The first thing I would suggest is stewarding your time well. Stewarding your time well. Here we are. We are one day into everyone's New Year's resolutions to get back in the gym failing. Okay? Uh, Gyms uh, get filled up in January. And in February, everyone who's serious about working out can get back to work. You know what I mean? Uh, because people aren't crowding your machines. I work out at home, so I'm not talking about me. I just, I just know how this goes. Okay? But we're making New Year's resolutions. A lot of them, uh, uh, <laughs> I don't know if you're making New Year's resolutions. But anyways, I don't know why you have to wait to the new year to make a resolution. But anyways, as it, happens, as it happens, that's what's going on right now. So if you're going to take advantage of that, you might ask something like, how am I going to steward my time well, knowing that I have limited time before the master returns? 2023, how am I going to steward my time well? Not simply busying myself, not just activity. That's not stewarding your time well. My brother worked at a place when he was in high school where the owner just could not stand to watch him standing there doing nothing. Even if no one was in the store, there was nothing to do. So my brother just, he, he told me this a hundred times. He got his little Windex and he had a glass counter with merchandise in it you could get for tickets. And he just washed the same place on the counter like over and over and over. And the owner was like, so long as you're doing something, I don't care. I just can't pay someone for just standing there staring at the wall. And, uh, and, but that's not what I'm talking about here. I am not talking about busying yourself. I'm talking about stewarding your time well. How much time do you waste? Be honest with yourself. How much time do you waste? What are the excuses that you make to waste your time? Okay. Where, can, where, can, where does sin take legitimate boxes? Remember, sin is a smuggler. Where does sin find the box that says rest and smuggle in laziness, knowing that no one will check in there? Because it looks clear. Where can you be more intentional with your time 
if time is short and a king is coming, stewarding your time well. Second, living in awareness, thinking sober-mindedly, thinking sober-mindedly, clearly, accurately, not in frenzied sensationalism about the culture, certainly not in frenzied sensationalism about predicting the return of Jesus, certainly not in taking all these dramatic steps, like, for example, to the best we can tell, Thessalonians stopping working because the end is near. No, no, that's not it. That's not thinking sober-mindedly. Thinking clearly and accurately about God's work and God's world, thinking accurately about myself as I seek to cultivate wisdom, where do you tend to not think sober-mindedly, perhaps? Where, where, where does some kind of sensationalism or some kind of angst or some kind of social momentum cloud your judgment and perhaps not allow you to think sober-mindedly about things because you are so for this thing or so against this thing that it actually, it actually ends up clouding your judgment? Think, so thinking sober-mindedly. And then finally, clinging to hope firmly. Part of the encouragement here is the certainty of salvation. It's that every slanderous thing that's been said about you will be given account on the day of the Lord. No one will get away with that thing that they did in some sense. It will either have been judged perfectly because Christ paid for it, or it will be judged at that point uh, totally. There there is vindication coming at the day of the Lord for Christians. There is a day coming where, again, there will be no pain. There will be no suffering. There will be no cancer. There will be no death. And he says, take these elements, take the fact that Christ died, that you have a hope of salvation, and and encourage one another, build one another up with these things. We sometimes think these are the basic things, we kind of move on to more advanced things. No, 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 we just need to press in further to a lot of these things. These are things we shouldn't get old, uh, uh, they shouldn't get old, we shouldn't get tired of. We are to encourage one another, hey, salvation's coming. Salvation is, to use Paul's language elsewhere, salvation is nearer now than when we first believed, so, so have hope. The second, the first category, second category is living in holiness. Living in holiness. There's a lot of things that could be said here, but particularly coming out of this specific passage, I want to urge you to cultivate a disposition of preparedness for a coming king. A disposition of preparedness. Someone who's cultivating a disposition of preparedness isn't asking questions like, is this, can I get away with this and this be acceptable? What is the bare minimum required in the Christian life? Do we have to dust that chair over there before the master returns? How much can I get, get away with and it be okay? Where are all the lines and how can I stand like my daughter right next to it? When I say, don't step on the carpet. She goes and puts her toes right here and goes, look, I'm not on there. Okay? There are some people who live the Christian life like that. I want to know how I can plumb the depths of this world insofar as it's a Christian version of it. Show me how much hedonistic pleasure I can have, or the opposite, this this, uh, pursuing Jesus is exhausting. I'm going to just mail this in. A disposition of preparedness says, I'm not trying to do just what is permissible. I want to do what's fitting. What is fitting for a servant of a king? That's a dignified position. What is certified for a master of a, uh, someone who is over a house? If the master returned right now, would he say, well, okay, 
that wasn't sin, but and you're still in, but man, look at this. Or if if the master returned because I'm cultivating a disposition of wait, the master, the master could return here. I, am I doing things that are fitting? Am I doing things that would render me prepared? Prepared. Is this how I want to encounter God? Or maybe worse, you go through your days and your decision without even thinking about how the coming of Christ and the coming of the day of the Lord even affects anything. There's no sense of urgency for you. There's no sense of urgency. Some, some of you perhaps need a greater sense of urgency because the master is coming and you will not be aware when it will happen. So cultivate a disposition of preparedness. I want to live prepared. Not in the sense of being a doomsdayer or a sensationalist. I want my heart prepared. I want my soul prepared. I want to live prepared. So when I'm psychologically surprised, I say, uh, I've been preparing. I've been preparing for this. I'm prepared. And then finally, walk in just what you are destined for. That's what he says right here. That's what he says right here. That indicative statement about who we are leading to an imperative statement about, therefore, how we should act. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. I mean, put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And let me just say, if, if you're someone who struggled, maybe you say, man, this armor, it looks really good. Man, it, it, I can, it protects. This is some awesome, this is some potent stuff, but it's so heavy. It's just so hard to put on the breastplate of righteousness on Tuesday morning. It's just so hard. That helmet of salvation is like, this. when I put it on my head, it's just, oh, it seems unwieldy. Then, then find someone who can help you and encourage you strap in on the armor. Find someone who can help you walk in. What does it look like to put on faith? How, who can encourage you in love? Who can help you put on that hope? I don't have hope for this situation. I don't have hope uh, that God loves me. I don't have hope. That the, who can help you put on hope? Who can help you put on the helmet? He's like, oh, it just doesn't fit me. I'm trying to pull it down, but it just... Uh, who can go, boom, smash it right down your head? You need that. You need these things. You need these things to walk as a day dweller. If you say, I just struggle so much, then find, talk to some people. Have some conversations. Reach out. Find someone who can help you put on this armor as day dwellers. Christ is coming. Let's be prepared and let's encourage one another practically in these things and towards these things. Let's pray. God, we await the day of the Lord because we know that for us it will be a magnificent day. It will be a magnificent day. Vindication is coming. Salvation is coming. Sinlessness is coming. And it is coming at a time that we do not expect, but it is not an action or an event that we do not expect. And so we pray that you would give us hearts that yearn to be prepared, that to conduct ourselves fittingly, to walk worthy of a king. As we steward our time, we steward our families, we keep watch over our own souls. We live in faith and love, in the hope of salvation. Lord Jesus, would you meet us where we are weak in these things? If we have 
lost any sense of urgency that is presented to us specifically by the day of the Lord, a theme that turns up so often in your word to be watchful. I pray that a sense of urgency here at the beginning of this year would yield fruit. Give us grace in the name of Jesus.